I want to begin this morning with a story, if you will imagine this scene with me. Imagine a bat somewhere in rural southern China takes flight for a typical late night feeding, but as it descends on the unsuspecting bugs below, it's met by another predator, a Chinese pangolin. And in the skirmish for the bugs, the bat bites the pangolin. And the next morning, a villager stumbles upon the animal and realizes how rare and valuable they are, and so he captures it, but not before the pangolin, in self-defense, bites the man. The villager doesn't think too much about it. It's a little scratch, but he throws the animal on his truck headed for the big city of Wuhan. And he heads for the Huanan food market where he illegally sells the pangolin to an eager buyer, and he thanks the customer, and he shakes her hand, and without realizing it, he has just given the woman far more than an illegal endangered animal. This is patient zero, ground zero, the first human to human transmission of COVID-19, AKA the novel coronavirus. The villager hasn't even experienced a single symptom yet, nor do the dozens of additional customers that he will infect throughout the course of that day. Nor initially do the hundreds of people that those customers then in turn infect over the days that follow immediately. Indeed, by the time that patient zero develops a nagging cough, which then devolves into serious respiratory problems that eventually will take his life a few weeks later, now thousands and thousands of people have been unknowingly infected with the disease. Now, if that story sends a little bit of a shiver up your spine, I wanna warn you that this morning, right up front, things are only going to get scarier because as I pointed out in last week's sermon, the coronavirus isn't the biggest danger threatening the human race right now, not even close. No, according to the Bible, there's another disease running rampant out there, far more widespread and even far more deadly. This pandemic is in fact the cause of every other ailment in the world, coronavirus included, and viruses serve as a fitting analogy for the sickness, because like a virus, it's invisible to the naked eye. It's so small that it hardly seems capable of inflicting much harm, certainly not death. But like a virus, this condition grows with time, seeking to completely take over and ravage its host. And finally, like a virus, it isn't content to merely destroy the life of its current host. Inherent in the very nature of this disease is the desire, the need to spread. If this plague has its way, it won't stop until it's infected and eradicated all of humanity. I'm talking about sin. As we saw last week, sin is the Bible's answer to the age-old question, what is wrong with our world? It's not suffering. It's not some impersonal version of evil. It's not human ignorance or a cruel, vengeful God or a passive, uncaring one. No, the Bible's answer to the problem with our world is unequivocally human sin. And the easiest way of understanding sin is to simply define it as rejecting God. God says, don't eat that fruit, and you do it anyway. It seems small. It seems insignificant. 
But as we're going to see today, Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis chapter 3, their rejection of God begins to grow over time. And it's not just in their own hearts. This morning, we'll see how their sin then spreads and starts to take over all of humankind. If the story of Adam and Eve's original sin in the Garden of Eden from chapter 3 is commonly referred to as the fall, humanity's fall from grace, then Genesis chapters 4 through 6 can be thought of as the fall out, the consequence of that fall from grace, the aftermath, the domino effect that ensues. And we're going to see that fallout unfold in three stages, personified by three different characters in these next three chapters, Genesis 4, 5, 6, as sin progressively multiplies and spreads and worsens, first in Cain's heart, then in Lamech's, and then finally in the Nephilim in chapter 6. But for sake of time, I'm going to spread this message out over two sermons. This will be part one, and we're going to focus exclusively on chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, the story of Cain and Abel. And so, if you have your Bibles there at home and want to turn there with me now, uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, we'll, we'll have um, the text up on the screen for you, uh, but we would love to send you a Bible as our free gift to you if you would just leave us your name and address on our website there. We'd love to, to connect with you and send you that. So if you would, uh, wherever you are at home for the respect of reading of God's word, if you would just stand with me as we um, read Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you inspire our study of your holy word now? God, would you use it uh, not just for information, but for transformation? Uh, 
God, we desire for our hearts and our lives to be changed from the inside out and to be shaped more and conformed more into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, you may be seated there at home. <clears throat> so uh, if you remember, I gave you 20 attributes, for those of you who were here uh, for Genesis 1 before Easter, 20 attributes of God in my sermon from Genesis 1. This morning, I want to give you 17 attributes of sin that I see arising out of the text here in chapter 4 alone. 17. We're going to do them all today. Ready? Here we go. Number one, sin spreads genetically. In Christianity, we call this the doctrine of original sin. It's the idea that we are not just sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. It's a part of our, our DNA, our identity. And we hear right off the bat here in chapter 4, verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And we know that biblically, in that very act of, of Adam knowing his wife, that's a Hebrew euphemism for sexual intimacy, that, that in so doing, Adam and Eve had now passed on not only their unique made-in-the-image-of-godness, but so too they have passed on their, their sin natures, that, that part of them that has now been marred and distorted. Um, and so Scripture is clear about this. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, we hear, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, so death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We have inherited genetically Adam's sin original sin. Similarly, King David confesses this truism in Psalm chapter 51, verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're born into sin. This is just how sin spreads. Number two, sin is rebellion. We need to camp out here the longest on attribute two because this gets us to the very heart of sin, its definition, what it is. And we read in verses two through two five here of Genesis chapter four, and again, Eve bore, uh, Eve bore Cain's brother, Abel. And now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. Now, why not? That's the logical question, right? Why does God choose Abel, not Cain? I tend to agree with many of the other commentators out there who suggest that we need to read between the lines of the text here in order to help piece this together. I think we have to assume that God has made it clear by this point to Cain and Abel how he wants to be worshipped. God has made it clear to them what kind of offering he desires and views as acceptable. And I think it's at least possible, if not probable, that God did that all the way back in chapter 3 with Adam and Eve before they even left the Garden of Eden. Remember how that story ended last week with God making the first ever substitutionary atonement, a sacrifice on their behalf 
for their sake, after Adam and Eve sinned and ate of the fruit, what does God do before he kicks them out of paradise? We hear the Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments of skins and clothed them. And so God had warned that sin causes death, but in order to spare their lives, God provided animals to die in their place and then symbolically covers them, kafar, he atones, he covers them in the hide as a reminder of the death that they deserve but were rescued from. Now, admittedly, is a bit of speculation to conclude that that, that then became the paradigm for how uh, all humans should from there forth you know, uh, make sacrifices. But I think what we can say definitively is that God is not arbitrary. God does not play favorites. And so there is some real reason rooted in the expectations that God must have given them that he regards Abel's offering, but he has no regard for Cain's. And I think we get additional hints of this in the three New Testament texts where Cain actually makes appearances in the New Testament. We hear in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, by faith, uh, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commanded as commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so faith here simply means trusting God. And we've seen time and time again, faith is a matter of the heart. And so at the end of the day, whether God actually demanded an animal sacrifice, and so Cain disobeyed and brought crops instead, or whether God demanded a first fruits offering, some commentators point out, Abel brought the fat portion of the firstborn of his flock as the best of the best, while the text here is conspicuously silent about whether Cain brought the first fruits of his crop, or just, you know, the leftovers. All we know for certain is that Abel trusted and therefore obeyed God, whereas Cain acted not in faith. Like his parents a chapter earlier, Cain decided that he wanted relationship on his own terms. And I think we gather as much from two other passages. Number, number uh, two here, Jude verse 11. We hear, woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So Jude associates false teachers here with the sin of Cain. And what is that sin? I think we get clues from those two other examples that Jude lists here. Balaam's error. We know of of the prophet, uh, the False uh, foreign prophet Balaam from Numbers chapters uh, 22 through 24. Um, Balaam who sought to profit off of cursing what God had chosen, namely the people of Israel. And so Balaam viewed God as a means to his own end. And likewise, Korah in Numbers chapter 16. Korah was the leader of a rebellion who rose up, defied against uh, Moses' leadership in the wilderness, essentially saying, why should Moses be our leader? What's so special about Moses? I'm just as qualified as Moses is. And so Korah rejected God's ways as well. And God's appointed leader, he wanted to call the shots himself. And that's really the core issue here with all of sin. God, as we noted, all throughout our study of Genesis 1, in all of his 20 attributes, God is sovereign, preeminent, creator, king of the universe, from whom and for whom everything exists. God is worthy of all our praise and glory. We were created to offer it to him, but sin is deciding that instead, I would like to be king. I would like to be God unto myself. 
I would like the glory. Instead of being a glory giver, I'd like to be a glory getter. That is sin. It's desiring to be in God's place, to sit on God's throne, and to call the shots, rejecting God's way in favor of our own. And we see that in the third and final New Testament passage here as well, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. We hear, we should not be like Cain, John says, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now that's a really interesting point, isn't it? We, we tend to think of the sin of Cain as murder, right? Cain was the first murderer in history and murder is the worst sin, right? Isn't it? And yet Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that if you harbor anger in your heart against your brother, you've done as good as committed murder already. And so instead of identifying murder as Cain's sin, his root sin here, 1 John 3 tells us that Cain's decision to murder Abel was actually just symptomatic of a deeper problem. Why did Cain murder him? Because he was evil. His real problem lay much deeper. It was a heart problem. Sin is always a heart problem, friends. And in Cain's case, long before the murder ever took place, his inherent sinfulness was already being manifest in his unacceptable offering in God's sight. He is rejecting God as king, right here in verse 5. We hear in 1 John 3, 4, just a few verses earlier, everyone who makes a practice of sin also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion. It's rejection of God. Matthew 7, verse 23, Jesus says about false teachers and prophets who will come to him and want entrance into heaven, kingdom of heaven, he'll say, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of what? Lawlessness, rebellion. You've rejected me as your lawgiver and your king. See, it's not enough to be religious, friends. Cain was religious. He was a worshiper. We're all worshipers of something. The Pharisees, Jesus' worst enemies, were very religious. But God demands to be worshipped on his terms. Sin says, my law, not yours. Sin says, I am king, not you, God. Now, from attribute number two, it's all downhill from here. The rest of the domino effect has now been set in motion. We hear number three, the confrontation of sin provokes insecurity and insolence. We observed a few weeks back in our Tough Text series with the sermon on Jephthah, the painful truth that hurt people hurt people. We find that to be true again here with Cain this morning. We hear in verse 5, for Cain and his offering, God had no regard, and so Cain was angry, very angry, and his face fell. Now that's an interesting response, isn't it? Cain doesn't get sad. He doesn't get fearful that the Almighty God has just rejected his offering, Cain gets mad. He gets insolent. How dare God not accept my offering? I didn't have to go to the trouble of bringing him my crops. He should be thankful. But how many of us today, if we're honest with ourselves, when we're confronted, even in the most loving ways, with the reality of our own sin, we are so quick to respond out of insecurity by taking offense. We become insolent, contemptuously insulting. We lash back out. We love Jesus's warning, do not judge lest he be judged. We throw that back in people's faces and we rip it totally out of context to make sure that 
we are ready to pounce on anyone who confronts us in our sin and we judge them in turn. Yeah, you want to judge me? Let me just, let's just talk about the plank in your own eye. And we start making our own list of critiques for our rebuttal, making our defense in our minds because the truth of our sin is too painful for us to bear. We don't want to look in the mirror. And so we want to turn the tables on them. Even in Cain's case here, turn the tables on God. Say, God, can't you see that you're being totally unfair? Get mad at God. And because of that, number four, sin then becomes blinding. We hear in verses six and seven, God replies to Cain's insolence. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? God says, Cain, open your eyes. Can't you see? There is a really easy solution here. Just repent and follow my commands. God is still the same life-giving, life-desiring God from Genesis 1. Repent and follow my commands. But Cain has been blinded to the beauty and the simplicity and the mercy of God's solution to his sin problem. The blinding effects of sin have already begun a hardening process in Cain's heart that he will ultimately never recover from. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, we hear, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. See, it's not just that unbelievers don't see their sin, It's not just that they don't see their Savior, that they don't see God's gracious provision of one in Christ, that they don't see the beauty and simple truth of the gospel, God's offer of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life, and all they have to do is simply turn from their sin and follow him instead. It's that they cannot see it. Unbelievers, if they've hardened their hearts, cannot see it. They've been blinded from the truth of the gospel by virtue of their own sin. And so that hardening of their heart, in that hardening of their heart, sin breeds more sin. Because, number five, sin wants to rule you. We hear in verse seven, God tell, warn Cain, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Peter picks up on this metaphor in the New Testament where he exhorts us to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The presence of sin and its source, Satan, is like having a hungry 400-pound lion curled up, waiting for you on your doorstep, just waiting for the door to open ever so slightly so he can just get a paw in in the door jam, and the rest will be history. Because guess what? You may think that you have your sin problem under control. You may think that you've got it tamed. But God is warning Cain, and he's warning us this morning, you make for a really lousy tiger king. You, You think they're tamed, but they're not. Watch the episode where, where the girl gets her arm ripped off, right? Your sin is not a cuddly kitten. It wants to rip you limb from limb. That's why Ephesians 4 verse 27 says, don't give Satan a foothold, not an inch, because he will take a mile. 
Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 7. He says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Remember, sin is a virus. And and unlike much of what passes for Christianity in the 21st century American church, sin is not just looking for a comfortable place to pass the time. Sin wants to spread. Sin needs to spread. Its very survival demands that it grow and multiply. And the same is true, by the way, for the church and the kingdom of God. It's like yeast. Uh, We're just missing it in so much of the church today. Uh, hopefully this coronavirus will help wake the church up. So, so sin, its, de- it's desire is, is to be contrary to you, but you must rule over it, God says. Notice this, this is the same phrase God used to describe sin's curse on the husband and wife relationship back in chapter 3, verse 6. God had told Eve that her desire shall be contrary to her husband, but he shall rule over you. So God is saying here, in the same way that husband and wives are now doomed because of the curse of sin to be at odds with one another, to experience conflict in their marital relationship. Can I get an amen from any other married couples in quarantine who are cooped up there uh, under the same roof for over a month now and the governor is now telling us that it's going to be another month? I'm assuming that Mike Parsons is not married because Otherwise, you would realize there are things much deadlier than the coronavirus. You can ask my wife after she's been stuck in the same house with me for a month. But in much the same way, God's curse on Adam and Eve and now on Cain and on all of us is to be perpetually locked in this Romans 7 battle between wanting to do good and yet finding another law waging war within us to tempt us back towards sin. Even though Paul just told us in Romans chapter 6 that Christ has set us free from that. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Now we're enslaved to Christ. So present your members to Christ for godly use. Christ has set us free, but you can call it Stockholm Syndrome we still want to crawl back into our prison cells. They're open. The the prison door is open. We've been set free. All we have to do is walk out, but our sin wants to hold us there in an invisible prison. Sin leads us, therefore, number six, to jealousy and to self-justifying. We hear in verse eight, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Here's The next domino to go in the fallout, insecurity and insolence leads to a blinding and hardening of hearts because sin wants to rule us, which drives us to turn from the vertical relationship. Remember, the root problem here is a problem with God. David says in Psalm 51.4, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord, because the weight of our sin in comparison to God's holiness is too much to bear. Because of that, then we turn horizontally instead And we want to look this way to either justify or to jealousy. Jealousy and covetousness. I want what she has or to self-justify. Well, at least I'm not as bad as him. Cain realizes that he isn't going to win the argument with God, and so instead he, he takes up his beef horizontally with his brother Abel. And we do the same thing, right? We either want to self-justify by relativizing our own sin as long as I can find examples of other people, uh, the neighbors across the street, coworker who sits right there, man, they're way worse than I am. I must be okay with God. Or in a jealous rage like Cain, 
we feel forced to overlook or even worse, to destroy anyone that threatens our self-justifying attempts. We, we, we just want to feel marginally less bad about our own sin, and so we're threatened by anyone that is holier, that, that is righteous, and that is uh, pursuing God and the things of God. And that leads us to attribute number seven, is that sin hates righteousness. We hear in verse eight, when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. Remember, why? 1 John three twelve. Why did Cain murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. See, it's not enough to say that sin is lawlessness. We need to stop and recognize that sin hates that which is lawful, that which stands opposed to sin. Sin hates anything that threatens sin, just like light is a threat to darkness. They can't coexist. And all of that hatred leads directly to attribute number eight, which is hiding. Sin necessitates hiding. Verse number nine we hear, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Obviously God is omniscient. God isn't seeking information here. He is giving Cain a chance for confession, an opportunity to repent. But the fact that Cain responds, well, how should I know, implies that after Cain slaughtered Abel, he tried to cover it up. I mean, the, 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 this, this scene, this conversation between God and Cain is not taking place next to the dead body, right? Cain sought to cover it up, to hide. He, he waited to murder him till they were way out in the field where nobody would find it so he could hide the body and then run home and try and hide from God and hide from his sin. And isn't that one of the saddest parts in all of this, right? In what Adam and Eve did after they messed up, Remember, they, they made fig leaves and they tried to hide from God. And here's Cain doing the exact same thing. This is generational sin unfolding before our eyes. In Numbers 14, verse 18, we hear God warn that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And this is exactly how he does it. He gives us over to our hard-heartedness and he allows hurt people to hurt people, hurt parents, hurt their kids in their parenting. I, I, I'm assuming, maybe, again, speculation, but maybe Adam and Eve never warned Cain that you can't hide from God, that it's, it's better, it's good to accept God's omniscience and yet God's, God's desire for a loving, open, honest relationship with us confess, repent, turn back to the Lord. They prob they, maybe they never shared this with him. Maybe that part of Adam and Eve's lives was too painful for them to go there. How many of us grew up, never got the sex talk because that portion of our parents' life was too painful to go there? There was too much hiding and shame in their own sexual brokenness that they couldn't go there, Right? My wife has four generations of alcoholism running through her bloodline, going back to the founder of Anheuser-Busch himself. Generational sin. You know, what is it in your family? 
But it's a result, no matter what it is, it's a result of trying to hide from our sin and run from it rather than face it and confront it and repent of it and to turn back to the Lord and be in a position to actually help steer future generations away from the same old mistakes. And to try and leave our kids a little bit less screwed up than we are. That's the goal of parenting. But hiding prevents that from happening. And hiding also then requires us to lie. That's number nine. Sin requires us to lie, to cover up. We hear in verse nine, Cain said, I do not know where my brother is. God asked him, where's your brother? I don't know. And anyone who's ever watched a sitcom knows how this works, right? Probably the most common sitcom trope is, you know, he tells one little lie, you know, yeah, that's my Porsche to try and impress the girl, and then he spends the rest of the episode trying to, to lie, to cover up for that lie, and then has to tell another bigger lie and a bigger lie. But in the real world, there are no laugh tracks playing in the background. In the real world, this this perpetual building of lying and hiding and guilt and shame piling on higher and higher. It's not so funny in the real world. That kind of lying and guilt and shame and hiding wreaks havoc on our hearts. And it also drives isolation. That's number 10. Sin drives isolation. Cain asked in verse 9, am I my brother's keeper? See, sin not only causes a rift, most importantly, in our relationship with God, but in our horizontal relationships as well. God, we already know, has designed us, Genesis 1, for relationship. And moreover, the the depiction we got in Genesis chapter 2 of Adam and Eve is that they're suitable helpers, complementary to one another. We are made to help one another, not just husbands and wives. We're all meant to help one another and be in relationship in some way. And so the presumptive answer to Cain's question here is, well, yeah. I'm imagining God thinking, yeah, you are your brother's keeper. You're supposed to be. I gave you spouses and siblings and friends and loved ones because you're supposed to take care of each other. But sin isolates us from others in our hiding and in our shame. So much so that number 11... Sin ultimately becomes inescapable. It becomes all-consuming. It stains every part of our life. Verse 10, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God's saying, listen, you can't avoid it. You can try and hide, you can try and run, but like David finally recognizes in the Psalms, where can I go, O Lord, to hide from your presence? I mean, I go to the highest The highest mountain, I go down to the depths of Sheol, you find me. You find me. Sin is inescapable. And it will eventually find you, and your sin will always catch up to you. And when it does, you will realize that number 12, your sin has far-reaching consequences. Unintended, unanticipated consequences. We hear in verses 11 and 12, Cain's curse. God says, now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain never could have imagined that killing his brother would have led directly to his inability to successfully grow crops ever again. Those two things seem unrelated, right? 
Cain loses his livelihood as a result of this decision, much less that he would be cursed to wander the earth for the rest of his life. Cain loses not just his livelihood, but his, his life, his, his family, a, a chance at home, a chance at building a life one day. It's gone. And notice again that like Adam and Eve's curse in chapter 3, the inversion here, the distortion of God's three life-giving commands that we examine from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Remember what God has called them to. God wants to give them life. He wanted to produce life. He said, be fruitful and multiply. But now Cain is cursed to be not a family man. He might have kids. I mean, he does have kids, but he's no father. He's no real father, as we're going to see next week. God had called them to promote life, take care of the earth, but now he's, the curse is Cain is not going to be able to grow anything successfully. God has called them to preserve life. God's original design was no death. I want you to live life to the fullest. And yet Cain now has become the first ender of lives, murderer. And now, in turn, he fears what goes around comes around. Others are going to kill me. Sin breeds sin. And because of that, number 13, sin defies punishment. In a desperate attempt at self-preservation, sin demands a characterization of any and all punishment as categorically unfair. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. No one hates the idea of hell more than unrepentant sinners. See, a true Christian doesn't agonize over the doctrine of hell. We don't lose sleep over the idea of an eternal hell. We might lose sleep over the people we know who are doomed to be there, who are headed there if they don't repent and turn to the Lord, but not over the idea of a supposedly loving God who could send people to hell. No, because we know exactly how fair hell really is. We know exactly how fair it is, how just it is of God to send us there, how much we all deserve it. And but for the grace of God, I would be in hell already. The true Christian knows that. Number 14, sin breeds shame and fear. Verse 14, we hear, Behold, Cain says, You have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. See, it's interesting to me here that Cain adds two details to God's curse. God didn't originally include that from my face you shall be hidden. God didn't say, Whoever finds you will kill you. And yet, Cain adds them in. But aren't those, those two phrases perfect descriptions of shame and fear? Shame. From your face I shall be hidden. Shame. And fear. Whoever finds me will kill me. And that's really the end result of our sin is fear and shame. We will be so overwhelmed with guilt that we can't even bear the thought of standing before God's face. Cain says, I, I, I won't be able to stand before your face. I'll, I'll be hidden. And how many of us does that describe? Maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you've been hiding in your shame from God's face. Maybe you've been afraid 
to attend church for years and years and years and maybe you're watching this at home now and you're doing the online church thing for the first time in a long time. You haven't darkened the doorstep of a church in years and the reason, if you're honest with yourself, is that you're convinced that God hates you. You're too ashamed to be here in person. And if that's you this morning, I just want to assure you here, I can't speak for other churches from your past that may be the reason that you feel that way, that maybe left you with that impression that you're not good enough to be part of their church. But I, I, I can speak on behalf of West Hills and just say, you're welcomed here. You're welcome because West Hills isn't a museum for good people. It's a hospital for the broken and the sick. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. West Hills is a church that is filled with people who have, 100% of folks here have tested positive for the virus of sin. And we're just a church of people who recognize it and have come face-to-face with our diagnosis, and yet we have also come face-to-face with the cure. His name is Jesus. We would love to share him with you, and you're welcome here. But otherwise, without the cure, devoid of the cure, number 15, sin causes separation from God. We hear in verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Just like Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden in chapter 3, generational sin, here we see Cain being sent away from the presence of the Lord in chapter 4 as well. And friends, if you have been keeping your distance from God because of your sin and your shame and your guilt and your hiding, then you are right about one thing, and that is that sin really does and will separate you from a holy, perfect God unless you have the cure for the curse. And, and, and we get to celebrate that in attribute number 17, and I'm dying to get there and end there, but first, last one, uh, penultimate, attribute number 16, sin begets more sin. We hear in verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. If sin is like a virus, what we're going to see next week as we walk through the genealogy of Cain's line, the rest of chapter 4 is that within just a few generations, sin has gone totally viral. I'm talking about Think of the most viral thing out there right now. I mean, this sin is more popular than Tiger King. It's more popular than the coronavirus. Uh, I'm bad on pop culture. But whatever it is, sin is, blows it out of proportion. I mean, it puts it to shame. Sin is viral. It's, it's rampant within just a few generations of Cain. And number 17, finally, but all of that is true about sin. Numbers 1 through 16. It's really bad. The sin problem, our sin problem, my sin, your sin problem is really bad. But, verse 17, sin is met by God's justice and his grace. We hear in verse 15, And the Lord said to Cain, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, God, remember Cain said, They're going to kill me. God said, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord will put a mark, and the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. God should have himself killed Cain on the spot. Here Cain's worried about other people wandering the earth. He should have been worried about God because God should have 
killed him dead on the spot. That's certainly what Cain deserved, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And friends, that's what you and I deserve, an eye and an eye, a tooth for a tooth from God. And yet, in spite of cursing him, in spite of allowing him to bear the consequences of his sin because of God's justice, he allows him to bear the consequences, God simultaneously and graciously preserves Cain's life. And he wants that for us too, friends. God has made a way for it to be possible for God to to both perfectly satisfy his divine justice, his righteous wrath against our sin, and simultaneously satisfy his grace and his mercy and his love And those two seemingly paradoxical attributes of God, his justice and his grace, intersect and hang together in perfect balance and holy harmony on the cross of Jesus. God covered Adam and Eve with animal skins and atoning sacrifice. God covers Cain with a mark, but he can cover you and I with something far more precious. He will cover us with the blood of of Jesus, the only blood, the only sacrifice, the only spotless lamb who can truly and eternally take away the sins of the world. But you have to receive him in faith. So I ask you today, this morning, will you receive Jesus, your curse-bearing cure for sin?